You're listening to Living Faith, the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. First Baptist Church is located at 100 North Lake Avenue in Avon Park, Florida. We meet Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. for Sunday school and 10.45 a.m. for morning worship. Sunday evening services are at 6 p.m. On Wednesday, we meet at 6 p.m. for our weekly Bible study along with our immersive student and children's ministries. Find out more at www.fbcap.net or give us a call at 863-453-6681. You can email us at info at fbcap.net. We'd love to connect with you soon. This is part of our current Sunday evening sermon series. Tonight we're going to talk about evangelism uh, and this kind of series we've been doing on Christian discipleship, uh, taking little topical um, disciplines, which is really where the word dis- disciple and dis- uh, discipling comes from, discipleship, disciplines that we've been talking about, such as zeal and, uh, Lord, they all leave my mind at this point, zeal, and help me out with some of the other ones we've talked about. Complacency, which is not a discipline, it is a bad thing, but tonight we're going to talk about evangelism, and I'm going to tell you why it's a discipline in a little while, something that we have to cultivate, because it's not something that comes naturally to us as human beings. And there are personality differences that make this the case. There are uh, ways that we engage with other people that make us different in how we do this, whether we're introverts or extroverts or extroverted introverts or introverted extroverts. All kinds of in-between personality issues that, that can come into our minds and make us think, I can't share the gospel. I'm too nervous to share the gospel. I don't know how to share the gospel. I don't like talking to other people. I don't know where to start. I don't know where to begin. And here's the thing. I can't solve all those problems for you. But what we're going to talk about tonight simply is what is evangelism from the Bible and from a few resources uh, I've been reading to help us understand what it means to share our faith and how, how we do it. First of all, if you're taking notes, the word evangelism comes from the uh, Greek word euangelion. If you're writing that, just write E-U, angelion, like angel with lion at the end. And it's just a combination of two words that means the good, you, angelion, message or news or announcement. So when you're reading the Bible and you read the word gospel in our English translations, that's just the English translation of the Greek word euangelion from which we get the word evangel or evangelism or evangelistic or evangelists. And all the different meanings of those words go back to that one simple word, gospel, good news, the you, good, angelion, message or news or announcement. So when we're talking about evangelism, I tell the kids, you know, when we talk about isms on Wednesday night, we talked about worldviews a little while ago and talked about humanism and secularism and liberalism and some of these things that, that pop up in the world today. And when you add ism to things, you're saying that this is what this is about. So to be about evangelism is to be about the gospel, to be about the euangelion, about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's a a very simple way to say it, that evangelism is telling the gospel. It's being about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We talk about spreading the gospel. We talk about living the gospel, witnessing, soul winning, all kinds of different phrases and words we use for it. All it simply means is to share the gospel. 
I've got uh, two main resources I was kind of reading through for this. Uh, one is, and I would recommend these both to anyone because they're, I mean, they're super simple to read. Around 100 pages, these two are. Um, this is Honest Evangelism by a guy named Rico Tice, who is an evangelist in the UK. And then this one called Evangelism by a fellow named Max Stiles. And these are both very simple, easy to understand, cookies on the bottom shelf. I mean, under 100, take you an hour, maybe an hour and 15 minutes to read through them. So that's what these are, and they've been very helpful to me kind of getting my, my thoughts together. And I just wanted to read um, Mr. Stiles' definition of evangelism for you. His short version is, evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. It's easy, right? Evangelism, teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. And then he gives what we call, what he calls the amplified definition, which is the same definition with a parenthesis with some other words that could describe what he's saying. So he says evangelism is teaching or heralding, proclaiming, or preaching the gospel, parenthesis, the message from God that leads to salvation, with the aim, hope, desire, or goal to persuade, convince, or convert. So evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. Teaching the good news about, speaking the good news about Jesus Christ with the aim or the goal of persuading people to embrace it, to convert, to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior and to follow him. Simple, very simple definition of what evangelism is. Sometimes it helps us maybe to take a step back and say what something is not. You know, understanding what something is not helps us understand what the thing is. Uh, this is helpful for lots of theological concepts, but it's, it's true of evangelism too. Evangelism is not living a good moral life. Okay? Now, now, these things can lead to evangelism. They can build bridges to evangelism. And I think living a good moral life should define a Christian. Okay? So don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying these things aren't important, but they in and of themselves are not evangelism. Living a good moral life, wearing a Christian t-shirt, first of all, they're probably terrible. Second of all, it's not evangelism. You might be showing something about Jesus to someone, and they might be standing behind you in, in line at Disney World, or whatever you might be doing that's, that's better than Disney World, which is nothing. You might be reading the back of your shirt. And they might get a little something, a little piece of the gospel, a little bit of truth or something, I don't know. Um, praying in public is not evangelism. When we say our blessings at the restaurant, it's a wonderful thing to do, to give thanks to God for our food, to be a, to be a witness in a way to other people, but it is not evangelism. Political activism, even the kind that we see on, on Facebook every day, is not evangelism. You can share the gospel using social media, um, but necessarily not necessarily posting something about Jesus or about the gospel even, or a Bible verse, or a, a terrible picture of something with some scripture verse attached to it. Not necessarily evangelism. Here's a big one we don't often think of. Inviting people to church or a Christian event is not necessarily evangelism. It's a good thing to do. All, all these things are wonderful things to do and be involved in. Political activism, maybe not so much, unless you're just really into that and you're doing it well, which so many of us don't, including myself. I just don't stay informed enough. The point of all this is to say that evangelism has a goal and a purpose and an aim, 
And it is a very specific thing that has to be done, namely to teach or to preach the message of the gospel of Jesus. Remember Stiles' definition, teaching the gospel, aiming to persuade. So there are four things I think he says are, are key to evangelism. And he makes a valid point, and I would make the same point, that if any of these things are missing in what we're doing and calling it evangelism, we're not doing evangelism. In other words, if you're not teaching, preaching, proclaiming, or heralding, if you're not talking, you're not doing evangelism. If you're not including the gospel, it's not evangelism. If there's no aim or goal to change someone's mind or to persuade them, it is not the gospel. I think about things that I've been involved in over the years and things that we, 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 we seldom think about, but we need to be very careful about. Um, Christian mission trips, short-term mission trips, world changers I've been involved in since I've been here, but even when I was in youth group, maybe not world changers, but other trips where there were projects, service projects, or whatever it may be, those things are great, those things are wonderful, but if they're not coupled with the proclamation of the good news, then they're not evangelism. And if they're not evangelism, it's not a missions trip. It's not missions. We hear a lot in our world today about churches and groups going on medical mission trips or dental mission trips, you know, going to third world countries and aiding people with what we would call mercy ministries, um, you know, doing things for them dentally or physically that they can't do for themselves, they can't afford, they don't have doctors, they don't have dentists, they don't have the money to do it, whatever it is, wonderful things to do. Christians should be involved in this, we should give to these kind of things, but those things are not in and of themselves missions. Why? Because they're not particularly and specifically dealing with the gospel. Hopefully they're leading to that, and if they are, it is missions. If they are, it is building a bridge to evangelism, but they in and of themselves are not evangelism. And there's a danger to getting it wrong. Many churches, uh, different denominations and different banners have gotten this wrong over the years, and we call it you know, mission creep. When you have a mission in front of you, go make disciples, and the church kind of gets busy doing other things. And those things kind of maybe lead us to the main mission. But more often than not, it has led the church's mission to creep to the left or to the right or wherever it goes. So the mission, to proclaim the gospel. So we have this activity and this activity and this activity and this activity that are supposed to be hopefully leading us here to sharing the gospel. But so often it has led us away from sharing the gospel. And so churches, Christian organizations, Christian events become a do-gooding kind of social club. But there's no center to sharing the gospel. There might not be even an understanding of what the gospel is. In Stiles' book, um, he does this, uh, little, this little domino effect of what happens when the church forgets its base in the gospel. The focus of preaching and teaching turns to living a moral life, not a gospel-centered life. So in churches that embrace this, the preaching and teaching of the word fails to teach and preach the word and instead takes principles from the word and merely says how to live a good moral lifestyle. We found this in the liberal movement in Christianity, the late 1800s, the early 1900s, as up to that point, biblically-minded, sound Christians 
were exposed to the first, for the first time to Darwinism, evolutionary theory. Uh, liberal scholars in seminaries in Germany began to say, the Old Testament's not, and basically it's not all it's cracked up to be. And it's not written by who you thought it was. And it's not written when you thought it was. And half of it's not even true. And so Christians and churches all around the world began to buy into this. But they wanted to stay Christian. So what happened? They threw out biblical teaching. They threw out biblical preaching and teaching. They threw out doctrine. They threw out the Bible for the most part, except for its ceremonial use. And they replaced the gospel with moralism, social activism. And so what you're left with is what we've called the social gospel. That a church would say, giving out a glass of water is sharing the gospel. Rebuilding someone's house is sharing the gospel. Giving to those in need is sharing the gospel. And in every case, it's not. Hopefully we're doing those things to build a bridge to share the gospel, but those things in and of themselves are not. And so Stiles says this is the first kind of brick to fall in this domino effect of what happens when evangelism is wrong. Number two, non-Christians are lulled into thinking that they are okay in their lost state. So in a social gospel preaching church or whatever Christian community, quote-unquote Christian, where the gospel is not preached and people are not equipped to share their faith, when there's no trust in the word, there's no preaching of the word, there's no doctrine, there's no teaching, you're left with the moral lifestyle that leaves lost people thinking that they are okay in their lost state. After all, you're not preaching the gospel. You're not telling about sin, about Christ's atonement on the cross, the need for repentance, for belief, church membership. Number three, three, Christians think that non-Christians are believers because they've made a superficial outward commitment. So we see someone that seems to be fired up for the church or for some event. Or maybe someone comes into the church and they get plugged in serving and doing stuff. And their life seems to be okay. But there's never been a moment where that person has realized they're a sinner placed their faith and trust in Jesus, joined the church, and has submitted themselves to the covenant membership and authority of the local elders or pastors or the membership. And so you, have, you see the dominoes continue to fall. The lost people think they're okay. The saved people think the lost people are okay, if they're even saved people at all. The church baptizes those who are not believers. This has been an epidemic especially for Southern Baptist churches in the last 100, maybe just 50 years, with an increased importance placed on numbers and church growth that is seen merely in terms of those numbers. And so there's this push and there's this draw to see more people fill the seats, less blue, as we call it here. And sometimes, not every time, but sometimes it has led to a forsaking of the original mission of the church in the gospel. And so people come making some sort of decision or some sort of commitment, even if there's no fruit, and immediately they're baptized. And it just furthers the problem. The church allows non-Christians into membership, whether knowingly or unknowingly. Or at times, I would dare even to say that pastors have set across from someone that they are 
99% sure are not saved. But maybe, maybe if we let them join and we get them plugged in doing something somewhere, maybe they'll get saved. And so we kind of give them a little, you know, a little free pass. Yeah, join the church. Everybody votes them in. Of course, we want people to join the church. We vote them in. Amen. Clap our hands. They might even get baptized. No clue what the gospel is. But they're busy. They're doing stuff. And we keep going down this road. Eventually, non-Christians become leaders in the church. That's the danger, isn't it? They're allowed in. Might even baptize them. They might join. They might take up leadership in the church somehow. After all, they're members. They can serve on our teams. They can serve on our committees. Heck, in some churches, you even let them teach Sunday school. Let them be deacons. In my home church, it was a thing we did. We saw a visitor come in. Hey, second Sunday, you want to teach Sunday school class? It, with good intentions. Get people in. Get them serving. Get them doing stuff. And then we have a serious problem because the last step, as Styles mentions it, is a church becomes a subculture of nominalism. Subculture of nominalism. Nominalism just simply means that you're whatever you are in name only. So these social gospel churches, liberal churches that have allowed this thing to happen to its max capacity in their churches are now just part of the subculture of nominalism. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, we go to church. Which one? Um, the, the, the Methodist one down there. The white one. The brick one. The one down across from the so-and-so gas station. That's nominalism. And, and here's the, the heartbreaking news about nominalism. It is a disease in the American South when it comes to the gospel. An absolute disease. We call it the Bible Belt because we, by and large, vote conservative along biblical social guidelines. We seem to be churchy, Christian-y people, but there's no substance of the gospel or sharing the gospel there. And all it is is an empty, liberal nominalism. Christian in name only. Why? Because somewhere in the past, a church or churches or movements or denominations have forgotten what evangelism really is. Teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. I, I, all these little markers in here are indeed quotes that I will read to you tonight because I don't want to claim any of these thoughts as my own. So I want you to know where they're coming from and I would love to recommend these books for you. In uh, the same book, Styles on... Uh, a later page, he, he's quoting actually from another book that you can buy in our, our resource room by Donald Whitney uh, called uh, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. And this is a quote from that book in this book that I'm quoting to you about evangelism. And he says, evangelism is a natural outflow of the Christian life. It's, it's just the natural overflow of what a Christian does. Uh, let me say it a little simpler for us. Christians evangelize. Non-Christians do not evangelize. Let's just put it more even, even more bluntly. If you're not evangelizing, you're not a Christian. 
we should all be able to talk about what the Lord has done for us and what he means to us. But evangelism is also a discipline in that we must discipline ourselves to get into the context of evangelism. That is, we must not just simply wait for witnessing opportunities to happen. A discipline is something that must be worked for, cultivated, trained for. That's why we call church equipping the saints for the work of ministry. You don't just come in here to sit and hear someone talk, just just to hear someone talk, but to be equipped and trained and taught so that you may then, filled with the Spirit's power, go out into the world and tell people about Jesus. That's what the whole purpose of this thing is. Other than that, we're doing nothing. Teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. So if I can just take those four points and whittle them down to three, that should make you happy tonight. Number one, method. Number two, message. Number three, mission. Method, message, mission. And I think you'll see that the four points fit nicely into that. Method, teaching or preaching, the message, the gospel, and the mission is aiming to persuade. So if you will, turn with me to Romans 10. We're not going to do an exegesis of Romans 10 tonight, but just a little quick run through, getting our, our bearings straight on what evangelism is all about. Romans chapter 10. Starting in verse 13. Romans 10, 13. Under method. Teaching and preaching. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by or through the word of Christ. You can highlight verse 17 in your Bibles or write it down somewhere. Faith comes by hearing. Not seeing. Not observing perceiving, insinuating, implying, faith comes by hearing, and specifically hearing the word of Christ, hearing the gospel. Paul's logic is very simple. It just is like a little chain reaction. You call on the Lord to be saved, but in order to call, you must believe. In order to believe in him, you must have heard of him. In order to hear of him, someone must tell you about him. And at the base of that is the work of the church, sending preachers and teachers and missionaries into the world to do that. Sending members into their communities, workplaces, families, jobs, schools to do that. You cannot live out the gospel. You can live out the effects of the gospel. You can live out the fruits of the gospel. You can live out the ramifications of the gospel. But by its very definition, you cannot live out the good news. It's an announcement, something that must be heralded, proclaimed, preached, spoken, heard. Not just merely exemplified in someone's life, as important as that is. When the uh, Mark Trammell uh, trio, they used to be the trio, Mark Trammell Quartet was here last year. Pastor John was listening to one of their songs in the office and we got into a little conversation about it because I would hear what he's playing next door and I'd go over and say, about that, 
and we got sat down and talked for a good long time. Our conversations usually last a, a good long time. If you can imagine two ADHD-prone people trying to get through one conversation, it lasts a fairly long time. But the song was something about talk, talk, and walk, talk. I don't remember how it goes. Does your, talk, does your walk talk like your talk talks? Because your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Is that it? Your, your, talk, your walk talks louder than your talk talks. And it's catchy and it's good. And the intent is wonderful. You know, we look at James. James talking about, you say you have faith, but where's your works? Back it up. You talk the talk, but do you walk the walk? Very important. Genuine faith is played out in good works. But if we're not careful, we can misinterpret something like that into thinking that our walk does actually talk louder than our talk talks. Therefore, we're not going to talk the talk. We're just going to walk the talk. But by the very definition of it, you cannot walk the talk. You have to talk the talk. Amen. The gospel is not something to be lived out. It is something to be spoken, preached, proclaimed, shared, and heard, and received, and believed as truth in the head to the heart. Now that should necessarily work itself out in good works, in a walk talk. But the walk does not talk louder than the talk talk. So we come to this, this question, what is the euangelion? What is it that we are announcing? What is the good news that we're supposed to proclaim? You often hear this phrase in kind of church growth technique kind of situations. Um, and they, th they think they're being clever. <laughs> the message hasn't changed. But the method has. Good news for you tonight. Good news for you. Helpful news for you. The message has not changed. And neither has the method. In 2,000 years, the method has remained the same. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The preaching of the cross. It's that simple. I don't have to go to a program. I don't have to sign up for an email daily blast for 30 days to church growth. To, to understand what God is calling me to do as a Christian. To see his church grow. And it's very simple. Open your mouth and tell people about Jesus. Now let's move on to the actual content that I just talked about. The message that we are to proclaim. Okay, method, preaching, proclaiming, teaching, message, the gospel. Go back to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, the first six verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Well, you notice just a few things in the first verses there. It's the gospel of God. The gospel of God. I'm not a Greek scholar. I did all right in Greek in seminary. But I do remember this. That when you see the gospel of God, 
It literally means it belongs to the thing that follows it. It's a possessive. It's God's gospel. Whose news is it? Not your news. It's not my good news. But it's God's good news. It's his announcement. It's his message. And that should, at the beginning, set us in a very different frame of mind than thinking that I can take something that belongs to God and change it to accommodate my culture or my setting or my situation, whether it's watering it down or compromising or equivocating on any of the points, this thing belongs to God and it's already been settled. It's established. Further than that, we are called to be messengers of the gospel. Now here Paul is talking about himself being set apart for the gospel as an apostle particularly, but even we as believers are set apart to be ministers of this gospel We're given God's gospel as a stewardship, as a gift to be shared. We are stewards of the gospel. And the gospel is about Jesus. I mean, it says, The prophets bore witness concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So you have two things there. It's the message about Jesus, and it comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what is God's good news about Jesus that comes by the power of the Holy Spirit? There are any number of outlines that you might be able to, you know, latch on to to tell someone about Jesus. But there, there are certain things that have to be present. Okay? I like to use God, man, Christ response. It's not catchy. It doesn't spell anything. Um, it, it's just one that I've, I've come across that I like because it's just right to the gospel. It's not kitschy or, or gimmicky in any way. God, man, Christ response. God, who is God? The creator, holy, righteous, reigning king of the universe. Who is holy and just and righteous in all he does. And he created us for himself. That's where man comes in. He made us in his own image to bring him glory and to bring him honor. But we fell through our disobedience and sin away from him. And now we're dead in our sins and trespasses, lost, rebels against God and his law. And we deserve from God the just punishment for that sin. The wages of sin is death. Three, Christ, but God in his mercy sent his son Jesus into the world to take the punishment for us on the cross, to pay the penalty we owed for our sins by giving his own life. He was buried and he was risen again on the third day proving that God had accepted his payment for us. And then full response. Because if we leave it there, we still haven't done evangelism, have we? We've told people about the gospel. Here's where that aim comes in. Response. Repent and believe the good news. This is the good news. This is what you do with it. Now, I can make an argument from the book of Galatians that what you do with it is actually part of it. Because if you change what you do with it and try to add something to it like works or sacraments or any other human work other than faith alone and God's grace alone, if you add something to it, Paul says you've made a false gospel. So if you go wrong on this one, you might as well not even spoken all of these because you don't understand what they mean. God, man, Christ, response. That's the gospel. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15.
Um, other little helpful outlines I think are, are beneficial for sharing the gospel. Um, there's one called Two Ways to Live that, that has a website, lots of free resources. They have tracks. They have things you can hand out. A very simple little, uh, actually like a, a diagram you can use to share the gospel with someone. And it is focused on that outline, God, man, Christ response, um, um, from a biblical angle that's very solid in how it presents the gospel. Another one is the, the three circles um, outline that they teach the kids at World Changers and our, our P2 trips. It's very helpful. And it's not gimmicky or catchy, but it's something you can kind of, you know, draw it on a piece of paper and explain to someone God's design, how he designed us to be, brokenness in our sin, and how God calls us to repent and believe the gospel to be restored to God's design. Very helpful thing. So write those two things. Do two ways to live, three circles. You can just Google search. You want to know what that is? I can help you later. Google search, three circles, world changers, or two ways to live, and you can find some of these, these outlines. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Okay, there you go, headline. I would remind you of the good news I preach to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. Okay, so here's what it is. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now Paul goes on to talk about his appearing before Peter and the twelve and the five hundred brothers at once, and that's wonderful. That's leading Paul into his main category for this chapter, which is the resurrection. But there, right at the beginning, Paul says, I want to remind you up front of first importance, highly significant, most important above all things is this, the gospel. What is it? That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried and he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. First importance. Top tier issues. Things you must believe to be saved. Things you must share to be sharing the gospel. Things you must understand to understand the gospel. At World Changers, I force our kids to give their testimony of how they came to faith in Christ. For a few, it's led them to realize that they have not come to faith in Christ because they don't have a story. They don't have a realization that they were sinners and came to Christ and understood these things and believed these things. And so we listen. And I tell the kids, if you're sharing the gospel and it does not include, or you're sharing your testimony, and it does not include Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, you're not sharing the gospel, and I would question whether you understand the gospel. We get so sidetracked on things that aren't necessarily there in the gospel, in people's testimonies. First of all, let's just get the thing about testimonies out of the way. Testimonies are wonderful. Sharing your story with someone is great. Like I just said, I make the kids do it in front of each other to share how they came to faith in Christ. But here's the thing, sharing your testimony is not sharing the gospel. You hear somebody say, hey, just, you know, <laughs> sorry I get so sarcastic when I talk about these things, it's just, it's just the way I'm wired. Pastor John too, Pastor John's more, um, he's more cute about it, isn't he? I'm, that's, his, that's his word, isn't it? I, I don't wanna be cute. Uh, I'm not being cute now, I'm being serious. But you hear people say, hey man, just don't, just don't get nervous about sharing the gospel. You know, just, just share your story. First of all, the gospel is not your story. It's not about you. 
it's not about me. So if I say I'm sharing the gospel with someone, but all I've done is told them about me and how God helps me in some ambiguous, cloudy, you know, way, I have not shared the gospel. I've just talked about me. Even if you say Jesus. Even if you tell them how you came to believe in Jesus. And maybe you even mention the cross and the crucifixion and the resurrection. If you're not telling them, this is what Jesus has done for you and you need to believe it and you need to receive it and that's not sharing the gospel in fact when we look throughout the new testament we see some shocking things i I think they're shocking when it comes to sharing the gospel in our modern context what we've made sharing the gospel hey let me tell you where you can find peace And we're not talking about peace with God or peace with God because your sins are forgiven in the atonement of Jesus Christ. We're just talking about a nice feeling about God. And that's what we say. Let me me tell you where you can find real peace. You're searching for fulfillment. Let Let me help you find fulfillment. You're searching for happiness. Let me tell you where you can find real happiness. Hopefully, by the Holy Spirit's power, those things can lead to a gospel conversation, but that's a pretty bad start. When we look at the New Testament, and I want you to write this down, and I want you to do this. I want you to look at times in the New Testament, specifically the book of Acts, because that's where you read these kind of things, where the apostles share the gospel. Just write that down to do later. The apostles preaching the gospel. Ask some questions. What did they say? How did they do it? here's some shocking things that you will not see now I'm not saying these things aren't true and if you go and look in the letters that the apostles write to the churches you see that many of these things are true but it's so important for us to see that this is not how they share the gospel they don't start with God really 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 loves you they just don't start there Peter does not start there in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost. And you would think, having been freshly filled with the Holy Spirit, this man who was just cowering in an upper room is now standing on a rooftop or in a street square preaching the gospel. He would be getting it right. I think he got it right. God really, really, really loved. It's a great place to start in our cultural context where people want love and acceptance and fulfillment and happiness and peace and all those things. I think it was Thomas Aquinas who said, people always want the things God gives, but they don't necessarily want God. So they want love and peace and acceptance and joy, and they love to talk about a God who really, 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 really loves them, but the apostles just don't start there. God has a wonderful plan for your life. You won't find it in the New Testament. Jesus died for you. Live for him. There's not even a super heavy emphasis on heaven and hell. Are heaven and hell real places? Absolutely. Do people go to these real places? Absolutely. Is it eternal? Absolutely. Are they real ramifications of what someone does with the gospel? Absolutely. But let me just tell you my story as a four-year-old. I think Pastor John has alluded to this recently. Here's a, pretend this is a picture of hell, and there's little, um, there's lots of fire, 
and little muddy looking melty people in the lake. And then here's a picture of heaven and it's a big you know, streets of gold and there's rainbow and clouds and a pretty city in the background. And who wants to go to heaven? Every four-year-old in the room, raise their hands. Now bow your heads and close your eyes. Now I want you to say this prayer after me if you want to go to heaven. You're saved. What have I responded to? The gospel? Peter and Paul do not start there. They're implied. Peter talks about a certain judgment that is coming. Paul and Peter says, flee from this wicked and crooked generation, implying that judgment is coming. Paul talks about the resurrection to life that, it, that belongs to the believer. But when we look at the things we so often hinge our presentation of the gospel upon, they might just not be biblical. Again, things that might be fleshed out in letters to the churches later, but they're not the crux of the gospel. What is the message of the apostles? I think if you were to look at Acts chapter 2 and see Peter's message, you see these simple points. We are sinful and we will be condemned. Christ died for the wickedness of sinners. He took God's wrath on himself. And then the question comes, brothers, what shall we do? Peter says, repent. And I think repentance in that, in that sense, uh, I think it covers two different things. I think it covers turning from sin. And I think it obviously uh, covers turning to Christ in faith. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Repent and believe in the gospel. Escape God's judgment. Be safe in Christ. When we water down those things or we change them or we alter them or we mistake them for something else, we're actually taking the gospel of God and replacing it with some other message. And hopefully, like I said, by the Spirit's power and with all good intentions, hopefully we get here, but so often we stay out here. I remember when uh, Jessica and I were in Nashville at our church there and I had my youth group from my home church in North Carolina. Um, they actually did a mission trip to our church to help in our community and do a Bible school and all that kind of fun stuff. And I remember there was a, um, there was a handicapped kid in our church in Nashville at that time. And he had a motorized wheelchair and he came all the time. And I, I mean, I, we had talked off and on about the gospel. We had talked off and on about faith. He came every once in a while. His name was J.J. And I remember one of these kids from my youth group in Gastonia, North Carolina, coming to me one day after our Bible club and said, hey, they were so excited. I mean, good intentions, wonderful intentions. Hey, we talked to that kid in the wheelchair and he said the prayer. And I'm like, great. You know, was JJ saved that day? I don't know. Hope so. Followed up with him. Him and his family ended up just kind of disappearing. They're not in that church today, so I don't know where they are, really. That girl was so excited because she got J.J. to say the prayer. And you hear Pastor John and I sometimes come, out, you know, come off on the prayer and stuff. It's not that saying a sinner's prayer is sinful. 
It's not that saying a sinner's prayer or helping someone voice their concern to God in salvation by a prayer and helping them get the words right. It's when we place all the emphasis on saying those words and getting through the motions and we put our stamp on it and say, saved. Why? Because they said the prayer. And they said they, they really meant it. Uh, Mark Dever, who's actually the pastor of the church that kind of publishes these little books, he always says when someone makes a profession of faith, he has two responses. Rejoice and we'll see. <laughs> Isn't that helpful? Rejoice with them. Praise the Lord you've made a profession of faith. We'll see how that bears fruit in your life. It's helpful. It's not, it's not meant to be discouraging. Rejoice. You baptize them. Everybody claps. Praise the Lord. From our vantage point, someone's come to faith in Christ. And we hope by the Spirit's power that that confession was real, that it was genuine, because there's only so much of that we can determine. And we hope to see fruit in their lives. Rejoice. And then we'll see. Another danger, I think, in the message of the gospel is overextending the gospel. The overextent of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ deals with man's most urgent, eternal need. Sin, salvation, eternity. The most urgent, basic need of all humanity. It does not offer a quick fix for anything and everything. Marriage, family, mental issues, emotional issues, physical issues, other issues. And you don't have to look far on Christian television or sometimes even on Christian radio to find out that this is how we've understood the gospel maybe in our time. That accepting Jesus will somehow fix all your issues. That you have a troubled marriage. You know what your problem is? You need to get saved. Come down here and get saved and your marriage will be right. Maybe. What if the other spouse never gets saved? You fix it just because you're saved? Maybe. Now, being in a right relationship with God certainly puts people in a better situation with the Holy Spirit's power to deal with these things. Mental issues, emotional issues, physical issues. You hear this all the time, don't you? You got a drug problem? Come to Jesus. Somebody says, oh, praise the Lord. I finally figured out how to get over my addiction. I go to Jesus and do this stuff and do the thing, and then I'll be free, and they're not. And guess what they think? They think Jesus hasn't worked. Because you told them, we've told them, that Jesus would work to do that. But we really never invited them to Jesus, did we? We invited them to be free from their problem. We invited them to be free from their situation. That's what they were responding to. Maybe at the end of their rope, this is the only option, isn't it? I've tried everything else. Why not just try this Jesus thing? I'll go down front, I'll say the prayer, I'll fill out the card, I'll get baptized, join the church, I'll do this stuff, and nothing ever changes, and they think it's the gospel that doesn't have power, but they've never actually heard the gospel or responded to the gospel or believed in the gospel because we've overextended it. We haven't met their first, most urgent need. We've tried to deal with all the felt needs on the outside. And when it fails, they and we might be tempted to think, that the gospel has failed. So in this section on the message, we have to be sure 
we're preaching the gospel. First, it has to be spoken, uttered. Faith comes by hearing, and it has to be the gospel. It's not just a self-help motivational speech. It's the good news about Jesus Christ. Turn now to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. One book over, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Talked a little bit about this this morning. Second Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. Very familiar passage. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled to him, us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Look there, it is our ministry. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Not just human reconciliation from one race to another, or one ethnicity to another, or one family member to another. Those are important. Again, don't get into the mission creep, because people will, people will quote that passage... And say, see, our ministry in the gospel is one of reconciliation. And they'll take what is meant to include a reconciliation between God and sinful humanity through Jesus Christ. And they'll say, it means racial reconciliation. Is that important? Absolutely. Is it the gospel? No. Family reconciliation. Is it important? Absolutely. Is it the gospel? No. So we have to be careful. It's a message of reconciliation between people and their God. And look, God is appealing through us. God makes his appeal through us. Think this morning about the shepherd calling the sheep. And I said, hey, go be the voice of the shepherd. This is it. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation, a message to preach. And so through our message, through our imploring people to come to Christ, God is actually making the appeal through us. And what's the basis of this reconciliation? Verse 21, one of the most glorious verses in all the Bible. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This great exchange that takes place where Christ takes our sin upon himself and he offers us his righteousness. Not just to give us righteousness, but it says here to make us the righteousness of God. That's the core of this message. That's the core of the reconciliation that Paul is talking about. And if it's not there, we've got the message wrong. And if the message is wrong, the method is not right. Lastly, let's talk about the mission. And these are the last two points I spoke about from Styles: the, the aim to persuade, looking for, seeking for conversions. At this uh, latter section here of 2 Corinthians 5, um, verse 20, it says, we implore you on behalf of Christ. We implore you. We appeal to you. We beg you to be reconciled to Christ. Reconciled to God. There's an appeal. An appeal is an invitation. Be reconciled to God. Begging, pleading, imploring people to be reconciled to God. This is why we must get our method right. 
unless there is a spoken invitation to come to Jesus in faith and repentance, there is no evangelism taking place. Now, do you always have to be evangelizing to do good things for people? No. You can just help someone change their tire on the side of the road. You can just help someone cross the street. Now, that's not the age-old example, isn't it? As if you, people really do that anymore. Maybe they do. You can really purchase somebody's meal for them that needs it. Give them things. Nothing wrong with just doing that. But just don't come away from that thinking you've shared the gospel. And don't think that you have to share the gospel each and every single time you do something nice for someone to make it relevant. God says do good works. Jesus says your father will be glorified in your good works. But here's the thing. Let your good works always be in your heart and your mind with other people building a bridge to the gospel. Building a bridge to sharing the gospel. And this is an aim to change someone's mind. To invite them to something. There's an appeal here. This isn't just simply unloading or uploading or downloading data to someone. Information, information, information. So it's like, here's the gospel. There you go. Hey, we'll see you later. <laughs> that's, not the, that's not fulfilling the evangelistic mandate. Sharing the gospel, sharing the news, sharing the information, and then following up. Do you believe? One of my favorite things to do with some of the kids on Wednesday nights is afterwards when they think I'm done preaching, they think I'm done teaching, and they're just over here hanging out with their friends or whatever. And I'm kind of like, um, I'm kind of like a, a, a lion, you know, that waits on that waits on one of the prey to kind of get, get out of the pack, and then he pounces. So I find that one that I've noticed has been listening a little closer. I wait on them to kind of get separated. I kind of meander over there. Hey, nice to have you. Hey, have you believed the gospel? <laughs> it's funny because it's a weird question. It is a weird question. And most of the time I look at you like, you know, one of my favorite answers has been, I'm starting to. And it's a little funny, but also very, very telling about how people deal with the good news. You, you believe this stuff I'm talking about on Wednesday nights? I'm beginning to. And then you can go through a couple courses with that, a couple little nudges. Hey, so, uh, like, you believe this stuff. You've come to faith. You, do you believe? What, you know, what is the gospel? Tell me, you, tell me what it is. They tell you. Well, so you believe that? Yeah, I believe that. You want to live for that? Sure. So let's talk about declaring that publicly through baptism. Okay. That's, that's what it means to appeal to people. To invite them to something. Not just blah, throwing up on them all this theological information, but then saying, okay, what now? What do we do with this? Now, what I don't mean by persuade is to one, convince. You cannot convince anyone that the gospel is true. You cannot convince anyone that there's a God. You cannot convince anyone that they're a sinner. You cannot convict someone's heart. You cannot give them the new birth. You cannot give them new eyes and new ears and a new heart and new mind. That's God's job. But you can be the voice of the shepherd declaring to them the good news by which the spirit can give them new life, new eyes, new ears. It's not apologetics. Apologetics are important. 
giving a defense for the faith is important, but it's not sharing the gospel. And it's not even necessary. You cannot talk someone in with logical, scientific, historical, archaeological facts to embracing the spiritual truths of the gospel. You just can't. It might help. It might build some bridges, like we keep saying. That seems to be my out for tonight. It builds a bridge to the gospel, but that's not sharing the gospel. The Holy Spirit's in charge of changing the mind. The Holy Spirit's in charge of changing the heart. Preach the gospel, speak the gospel, urge people to come to Christ through repentance and faith, and go further. Show your repentance and faith through baptism and church membership. A few practical steps I found were helpful. If you're, if you're asking, you know, how. So once we've you know, downloaded all this information about what evangelism is and what evangelism isn't, I think it's helpful that Stiles gives us these wonderful little uh, steps. Number one, give yourself grace. Give yourself grace. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna sound awkward sometimes. A lot of times. The people might look at you funny. You might not have the exact theological wording you think is necessary to share the gospel with someone. You might not know where to start. You might flub it up from time to time. You might say something wrong, mildly heretical. <laughs> Here's the thing, give yourself grace. Be a willing, submitted servant to Jesus and allow him to use you as you preach and speak the gospel to someone. Meet people where they are. I hate that cliche, but it's so important. Meet people where they are. Not everyone is in your same you know, stage in life. Not everyone has the same bank account that you do. Not everyone has the same vocabulary that you do. Not everyone speaks the same language that you do or has the same culture you do. And if we think for a moment that our job is only to reach middle class white people, we've lost our minds. And we've probably lost our souls. Meet people where they are. Talk to them on a normal level and tell them about Jesus. Look for open doors. Simple, isn't it? Look for open doors. Pray for open doors. They'll come at very unexpected times. I, I wasn't necessarily praying for an open door, but I was uh, getting a car wash one time, waiting on them to do all the stuff, and I was sitting at this picnic table, and um, two people beside me were having a conversation about um, going to the club, okay? Clubbing. And the, the dude was trying to rationalize being a 54-year-old man who had left his wife because she didn't like to go clubbing. And they're divorced now, and he's looking for a new woman that likes to go clubbing. And I'm just listening to this, you know. Okay, this is fun. I stand up, I go to pay, because the lady he's talking to is the one that's taking the credit card payments for the thing. I go to pay, and the lady says, how about you? What do you think about marriage? Well, I think a marriage is a covenant, bet <laughs> I mean, is a covenant between two people 
a man and a woman in the eyes of God, whereby they pledge themselves to each other until death do you part. And they're like, <laughs> all right. And the guy, but what if she don't like to do the same things you like to do? Well, marriage is about sacrifice. Marriage is about not always getting what you want, but giving to the other person what they might want or need. And I've never heard of this before. These simple concepts, isn't it? And I felt the Lord, ugh, you know, when he, when he does it, and you're like, uh, really? Open your mouth and tell them about Jesus. Like, have you ever heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ? <laughs> I swear this was his response. You mean like gospel music? Yes, maybe, depending on the gospel music you're listening to, <laughs> maybe. And so I uh, just shared the gospel with them. I didn't get them to say a prayer. I didn't get them to sign a card or do anything. I just, this is, you need to repent and you need to believe. Find a local church you can get involved in. If you repent and believe, I'd love to talk to you. Here's my info. That's all you can do. Pray for open doors. Remember to be compassionate and maintain a tender heart towards others. This is hard for us, isn't it? Homeless person that approaches you that you're just really trying to avoid. The person in your family that drives you insane but so desperately needs Jesus. Remember that we have the answer to life's biggest questions. Focus on people's separation from God, not on being morally upright. We're not inviting them to a lifestyle. We're inviting them to Jesus. Be intentional in your conversation. Here's an important one. Acknowledge what we know and what we don't. This is why, as I said this morning, one of my favorite things to do with the kids, we've been talking about Antichrist lately on Wednesday night in 2 Thessalonians. And I said, is it a person? Is it a kingdom? Is it a system of thought? Is it a government agency? And they're all like, Here's the answer, I don't know, and I don't have to know. That's an important thing to tell people, and it can be refreshing for someone to hear that. When this concept of Christians as know-it-alls, that have all the answers, that just know what to say, and you say, they ask a difficult question, you know, I don't know the answer to that question. I will sure pray with you about it, and I will try to find someone who does. It is good, though not required, to ask permission to share the gospel. May I share the good news about Jesus with you? Not required, but a good little door opener. Ask a lot of questions, be a good listener. Sounds like two opposite things, but do them in tandem with each other. Ask a lot of questions, be a good listener. Finally, if you anticipate a certain issue in a person's life, it's good to be acquainted with it by reading a book or talking with someone who knows about the issue. In other words, I think the nice way of, he's saying it in a nice way, don't try to talk about things that you might not know anything about. Number of issues come up there. Don't try to help someone with some situation that you know nothing about. Answer what you can, talk about what you can, offer life's, the answer to life's biggest questions, the gospel, and invite them to Jesus, not simply a lifestyle. I'm going to read a little bit um, from you, just one quote from... Uh, Rico Tice's book here, page 88, if you're writing this down and you want to buy the book later, I'm 
wishful thinking here that you're actually writing the page down so you can go research it later. But research suggests that when people put their faith in Christ, on average, it's taken two years from the point when they came into meaningful contact with the Christian who witnessed to them. And that time period is growing. Witnessing is a long-term commitment to invest in a relationship, to pray tirelessly, and to speak the gospel over and over again, patiently and persistently. It is a journey of gospel conversations, and it really does take effort. We used to be so acquainted with evangelism that it might have been simply completely defined by knocking on someone's door, going through a little thing with them, and getting them to make some sort of decision. Nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But and we're living in a very, 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 very different world. Build relationships with people. Now, don't wait to share the gospel. It's, we're not saying wait till you're really comfortable with someone to share the gospel. Build a relationship with someone. Invest in someone. This book that we've been reading in our shepherding group with Pastor John, Disciplines of a Godly Man, he says uh, these few points. Become personally involved in the lives of others. Invite your friends to lunch or dinner or to your home for coffee or tea. Jared. And <laughs> do things together. Attend plays, sporting events, art exhibits, go fishing. You know, create moments of conversation. Use special days to share your interests, birthdays, graduation, holidays, weddings, births, etc. Join a club, such as Rotary, Lions, or you know, other things. They didn't put Shriners in here for silent. Join an interest club, gardening, hunting, cooking, woodworking. Volunteer to coach a boy or girl's athletic team. Be a teacher's aide. Give your time to a hospital. Volunteer. Here's a novel concept. Open your home to the neighborhood. Be the most hospitable home on the block. Providing opportunity to share the gospel with people. It's very simple. Teach the gospel with an aim to persuade. Lastly, look at Romans chapter 1. Two verses, verses 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Wonderful quote from John Stott in Rico Tice's book, if I can find the right page here. Although the message was Paul's, the saving initiative was God's. Paul's preaching was not effective in itself. The Lord worked through it. And the Lord's work was not in itself direct. He chose to work through Paul preaching. It is always the same. Paul says the gospel is the power of God. That's where the power is, not your convincing, not your persuading, not your arguments, not your ability to speak, not your ability to argue or persuade. The power is God's, and the power is in the gospel. But God chooses to use you as the instrument by which that power comes to the world, to your neighbors, to your relatives. The power belongs to God. You don't have to turn here, but as I close, I'm just going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 
first five verses. Something to kind of leave us with. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. I'm sorry, I said 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2. When you get there and realize you're not in the right place. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Listen, listen to what Paul says. This is Paul's confidence. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom. But in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And I would simply posit to you tonight that if the Apostle Paul, who was called and anointed in a special way to reach the Gentiles, said, I did not come to you with plausible arguments and clever speech and wisdom, but with the message of Christ crucified. And through that, the Spirit worked in power to save you. If that's what the Apostle Paul said, that's what we can say too. Simply open your mouth. Share the gospel, share the good news of Jesus, and leave the rest up to God. It's his power, it's his message, it's his gospel. We're just called to teach it, to proclaim it, and to ask people, to beg people to respond and to be saved. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this opportunity to study your word, to study this important topic of evangelism. I ask that by your Holy Spirit's power, right now, you would convict our hearts our desperate need for evangelism and for reaching out to our lost friends and family and co-workers, the lost neighbors across the street, down the street, the lostness of the world in regions where your name has never been heard. God, convict our hearts for the lost. Ignite in us a fire for evangelism, for preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel with an aim to persuade people to come to Jesus. Go with us now by your Spirit's power. Help us to do this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for coming.